You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show. Hello, welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-host, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Hey, Matt. What's Hello. up? How are we doing? Good. Everything good? Yeah. Yeah. Back from Thanksgiving holiday, battling through December to the next holiday. That's right. Yeah. This is <laughs> the busy period. Well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of. one of the busier periods. Kind of is. <laughs> um, awesome. So today's topic is all things geochemistry. We might have a different title, but we're going to talk about geochemistry. And uh, I was trying to think about how to set this up and... I think we do a good job on this podcast of covering foundational concepts in many disciplines of geology. So we've had episodes on geologic time, climate change, Appalachian tectonics, fossils, water. So like really broad foundational parts of of broad disciplines in, in geology. And somehow in all that, geochemistry is often ignored or just not not on the list right and I think um, I think our guests can correct that but I think there's like a perception that geochemistry is really hard it's kind of a fringe discipline in in geology it's like disconnected to other other disciplines in geology for some reason maybe maybe it's just me thinking that (laughs) Um, because like you know I took low temp joke chem in grad school is, I liked it, but it's really hard. And I think that's like the perception <laughs> of a lot of grad students are, oh, geochem is really hard. Um, but when in fact, geochemistry is very fundamental to so many earth processes that we, that we understand. So, okay, our guests can probably, you know, squash that, <laughs> squash that thought if so. But um, I think our guests can make geochemistry less fringe and scary. And, um, so our guest is Dr. Andrea Earhart. Andrea is an associate professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences here at UK. She is the director of the Kentucky Stable Isotope Geochemistry Laboratory over in the department. Uh, her research interests include paleo-oceanography, low-temp geochem, isotopes as environmental tracers, and a, a whole lot more. Andrea, am I crazy? Was that stupid? Or what? Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. Uh, First of all, thank you for having me here. <laughs> and I am thrilled at the opportunity to tell you how amazing geochemistry is. Okay. How geochemistry is the thing that binds all the pieces together in all of the geosciences. I, d- I, I just will say that that's <laughs> awesome. And we, I w- I, uh, French, I didn't mean French. Because <laughs> we have, we, you have been on our short list for, for guest on this podcast for a while. So geochemistry has been in our mind. Just wanted you to know. That's great. Okay. I think we talked chemistry when we talked on Mammoth Cave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's always been around. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> your chemistry <laughs> comes up all the time. Yeah. But I, do, I do notice that throughout my careers, I think about geochemistry more often yeah. than I ever thought I would. Yeah, I think we need to do that it's more. Pretty I, d- fundamental. I need to do that more. <laughs> yes, yes. So give our listeners a, a, a snapshot of your interests or whatever else. Yeah, so um, again, my name is Andrea Earhart. I've been at um, University of Kentucky. This is my eighth year here. And I wear a lot of hats. Um, I'm uh, the associate chair of the department, but I'm also affiliate faculty in the Earth and Environmental Sustainability Program, and I'm also affiliate faculty with the Kentucky Water Research Institute. Um, all of those sort of encompassing sort of all the different ways that geochemistry can sort of fit into our into our world. Um, and I'm also um, uh, just all the other fun things I do, other hats I wear. I'm the Institute for Advanced Studies and a Boyskin Fellow at the Technical University in Munich. I spent last year in Munich, Germany. Oh, yeah. oh, and that was focused cool. on looking at um, women and gender diversity mm. issues in the sciences and integrating that in. So lots of different hats I wear. Um, but geochemistry is my core and my love. I didn't start <laughs> out as a chemist. I was, it is, was my hardest class in high school, actually. <laughs> but because I worked really hard at it, um, I found all the ways that geochemistry is interrelated to everything that we do. And so the research that I do and my group does and my interests lie in is all sorts of things. Like geochemistry can tell us about 
paleoclimate, so how ancient climates looked, how ancient oceans developed and changed, that's all really embedded in the chemistry, how all of the climate processes have been occurring over either short time spans or very long time spans. And then I also like to look at things on a very sort of the modern environmental side of things as we go out across our, our beautiful state and we see different bits of contamination or we see water moving different ways and can we trace that, can we understand that? And these are all tools that chemistry can let us do. And so they're sort of this like secret tool to really understand how rocks and water have evolved over time. Yeah. That's interesting. I was just in Andrea's lab yesterday yeah. doing some isotope analysis on oh. my water for that very reason. So it's it's very pertinent. Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, the geochemistry. Here's what I got from uh, Yale University's geology department. See if you see if mm -hmm. you agree. Geochemistry is a branch of earth science that applies chemical principles to deepen our understanding of earth system and systems of other planets. Geochemists consider the chemistry of natural earth materials carried out in discrete places, rocks, fluids, gases, and biology that exchange matter and energy over a range of time scales. How's that? Is I that, mean, that's, is that, that's is that sounds properly broad. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> when you think about chemistry, right, it's the idea that things are interacting and reacting with each other. Like, what is a basic chemical reaction? It's just your sodium and your chloride interacting and making a salt, right? That's a chemical reaction, is formation or dissolution of salt. And so the idea is that, like, every single thing we see out there has some sort of chemical reaction in them. And understanding those reactions gives us a chance to understand the how and the why of all those processes. So yeah, it can encompass things, you know, in other planets, right? I mean, I showed in my lecture today, mm -hmm. desert varnish on Mars, right? Here's a chemical reaction happening on Mars. And because we can go and study it in Western part of, of the United States, we can understand, okay, well, this process happening here, the chemistry on Mars, which we can't yet mm. go to, the same processes are happening there. So it's this great tool of linking and understanding how everything's working and interacting. Yeah, one, one good way I saw it put was geochemists are interested in sources, movement, and fate yeah. of, of compounds. And which is pretty much everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all of it. It's everything. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I think connected to that, a lot of textbooks sort of lay out what are called geochemical spheres to sort of illustrate the broadness and the connectivity of, of, of chemistry. So there's some of this we've touched on in other podcasts, but there's, there's lithosphere, the pedosphere, the biosphere, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere. And I wasn't sure if this was a real word, the, even though we've kind of talked about it, the anthroposphere. And the cryosphere. Oh. Oh, did I miss one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cryosphere, the, the frozen cry bits. Oh, the frozen oh, bits. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's just a, a <laughs> list of very broad spheres or domains or parts of our planet or other planets that, that um, you know, are examined by geochemists to understand these principles. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that's a great sort of holistic way to view things, right? And Understanding how these all are going to interact with each other is one of the core things that we do in geochemistry. So we can take um, take the pedosphere, right? So thinking about soils. Soils. Like soils are just like living rocks, right? And they've got this great combination of bacteria and organisms and worms and things in them. But they're also they're I mean they're made out of different pieces of rocks and minerals as well. And there's also water in there. So it's a great sort of environment where you have all those things happening together. The chemistry of, say, a soil is really, really cool because some of the bacteria are going to generate different sorts of things. They're going to change the pH, the like what the composition of that material is, right? It's going to, you can use the chemistry to track how much things have been living in that rock over time or is actively happening right now. We can use the geochemistry to trace how much water has been in that soil and what those reactions have been, right? And so if you have a soil that's dry, say in a desert, it's gonna look a lot different than a soil in the rainforest. The water in there, that chemical reactions that the water allows to happen, that's the distinguishing factor between right a warm dry place and a warm wet place that water can break down those materials and form the different types of soils so each of these different spheres sort of works together to sort of 
you know, it's a great way to think about all the different interconnectedness of the globe, but the chemistry, the processes are the same, but they're all going to be linked up together. The atmosphere is super cool because you've got all that energy coming in from the sun. It does weird and wild and cool <laughs> things, yeah. right? Atmosphere chemistry is yeah. really wild and neat, yeah. right? You can form ozone, and ozone is going to, like, change the composition of things as it forms. But you can also form, say... You have maybe, you know, your nitrates coming from the soil or coming from pollution, getting up into the atmosphere, breaking down, reforming. The hydrosphere is going to rain that all back mm. down and get it back into sort of the water masses in there. So you can use the chemistry to sort of link all those pieces together. So that's a good segue into some of the more specific uh, specific and fundamental concepts between chemistry and, and geology. And so... You're primary low temperature geochemist, is yeah, that correct? And so, correct. Um, how do we how do we differentiate low temp geochem versus high temperature geochemistry? Yes. Is that, is that so something we, we you differentiate them just because chemistry is so big and so broad, and we want to have you know a sense of the different things that are happening. So high temperature to start with that right that is things that are happening at obviously high temperatures, but think about things that are happening inside our Earth, right? That is a wild and cool environment where you have so much pressure and so much heat and minerals are going to reshape and reform um, and make a lot of the rocks that we see around us. Um, so deep, deep, deep subsurface magmatic processes, yeah, yeah. hydrothermal Yeah, anything that's like deep and hot and that's where you get the big deep heat is sort of down the Earth. I like to do low temperature geochemistry because I'm a curious person and I like looking and walking around and seeing the world around me and understanding what's happening. Mm. So I would define low temperature geochem as just anything that's happening on the Earth's surface. So mm. in temperatures that I am comfortable <laughs> being <laughs> with varying layers of clothing right, perhaps, right. but like things that are where processes we're seeing. And so that encompasses all of these different pieces um, that we've sort of been talking about, all the spheres except for things that are happening deep, deep in the lithosphere. Yeah, that's well that that's well said. Um, why why was low temp geochem real scary in graduate school for me? Everybody's scared of chemistry. It's just the word. <laughs> I think it's an automatic response. I mean, I think so, something that was intimidating about low temp ge geochemistry to me, and I'm a person that had to drop it because I got appendicitis in the middle of this. Oh, anyway, that's <laughs> right, Doug. Whole story. <laughs> drop it. But it's this interaction. I, I feel like with low temp geochemistry the what makes it complicated in my head is this interaction of all these spheres is happening in low temp geochemistry more maybe more so than in high temp which really deals with i think with you know subsurface high temperature making rocks things like that that we feel maybe a little more comfortable with right as, as just geologists regular old geologists yeah, yeah. but um, you know, once we start interacting with the biosphere and the atmosphere, then it gets a little, uh, to me, it was a little scary because it was like, oh man, there's all these, all these different factors that are, you know, um, acting on rocks basically or, or yeah. Yeah. And, and so that, that kind of leads to my, my next point, uh, how important is basic chemistry in, in, you know, Geochemistry and untangling or connecting the, the process of the spheres. Like, do we do we you need a good good chemistry background, uh, understanding the periodic table, what an atom is, what an electron is, uh, I mean, some of those basic things. Yeah, yes and and no, right? So like, I think of geoscience as, I mean, this really cool field because we get to do the application of all these different things. So a geophysicist gets to apply the physics to you know geology problems. As a geochemist, I get to apply chemistry fundamentals to problems that are happening around me. So I don't need to be as advanced of a chemist. I don't need to like have totally mm -hmm. nailed my physical chemistry <laughs> class or <laughs> I've never actually taken physical chemistry. Um, but we use it as sort of a, we get to apply that. So the basic understanding, but I mean, I think it's much more engaging because we get a chance to like talk about real things. Mm -hmm. We can talk about different e contamination issues or acid mine drainage or other sort of things that we see and know, how a soil develops. And so, I mean, is it hard? I mean, it depends. I think, <laughs> I think physics is way harder, so. Um, 
But it's just, it's sort of, if you can get excited about how the world around you behaves, then geochemistry is a great field to be looking at. I think it's similar to like math and and maybe some, I found a disconnect when I took those subjects in high school, um, as opposed to going back into whatever field it is I chose to study and having um, either the math or the chemistry applied, it makes so much more sense when you talk about it in terms of, these interactions with water and rock or water in the atmosphere and then just plunking down a table of elements in front yeah. of me in high school. I, I think it actually, right. and it's more engaging that way. Um, and and with, with math, the calculus was the same way. Oh, it didn't make any sense. And now it's, oh, it's about rates and change over time. And that makes sense. So if you only have that limited, you know, exposure to it, maybe when it's not applied, it's, it's harder to, wrap your head around because it, it is more nebulous yeah that i think that that mm. makes sense to me for sure yeah it's not scary <laughs> but i do have like five periodic tables in my office because <laughs> i think they're the coolest thing <laughs> <laughs> <on Wall-Art. laughs> very colorful yeah, yeah i mean yeah. it's it's just a cool way to look at the world no, that's yeah. A great, yeah so i th- i think you know, continuing on this point of connecting geology and geochemistry a big connection is chemi- chemical weathering um, so we're talking about the interaction of rocks with mainly the hydrosphere in the atmosphere and what kind yeah. of changes that, that brings about. So, uh, for example, the, the reaction of minerals and rocks with water and carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's chemical weathering. I mean, it's kind of the root of uh, a, a lot of these low-temp geochem uh, concepts. Yeah, I mean, I think the interaction of water in general with Any with earth materials yeah. broadly broadly <laughs> defined right is sort of the f- what we're sort of looking at right and we think of chemical weathering think about that think about that rain coming down and and you know dissolving something as it goes or cro- causing something new to happen so think about like you know Rainwater is actually a little bit slightly acidic, and so rainwater over time hitting something that's a calcium carbonate, like like our caves that form mammoth, or I mean a statue um, in some of the old statuaries, mm-hmm. right? Those mm. are all limestone. Mm-hmm. Those are all carbonate. Over time, you can get that chemical weathering process, and we can see the history of that. Yeah. Right? You can always think about like a fun way to think about it is if you go to an old go to an old gravestone, a graveyard, right? And you can see if they're made of different rock types, they're going to be weathered in different ways. Right. And a lot of those are chemical weathering processes. The old limestone gravestones, most of them are sort of smeared away, and that's all a chemical weathering process. Whereas different rocks, say a granite, isn't going to have that sort of chemical reactivity. And so we think about in chemical weathering both how much water is in there, what that composition of that water is, and then what that water is interacting with, what type of rock it's working with. Yeah. Um, so then this gets back to um, the chemical bonding of uh, elements that make up minerals. So that, mm-hmm. that matters with how uh, um, weathering differences occur, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, a good a good example to think about that is, think about the difference between so calcite and aragonite. These are two carbonate minerals. They're both the same chemical composition, but they're structured a little bit differently, and so they behave differently, right? And so as geochemists, we try to understand, well, why does aragonite uh, dissolve more than calcite? Mm. And like, this becomes really important. It's not just this weird esoteric thing where we want to like dissolve rocks. This is really important <laughs> in the ocean because some organisms make their shells out of aragonite and some organisms make their shells out of calcite. And so that difference means that one is going to dissolve more than the other. And so when we think about, say, ocean acidification, another really cool geochemical issue, understanding sort of what that chemical structure is depends on who's going to be most impacted. So those poor organisms that make aragonitic shells made of aragonite, they're not as happy (laughs) right now as the the calcite ones that got a little more resilience. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it that way. So that gets back to looking at past climates, and Mm -hmm. you can use the different composition of the rocks, I think, to look at what what organisms at that time liked that temperature and learn a bit about what that temperature was then and how it changed over time, how the different organisms shift. Um, 
with changing temperatures. I mean, most of our understanding of ancient climates is from chemistry, right? Mm. right? Like, I mean, people are like, talk about how do we understand ancient climates, right? We've been collecting CO2 measurements from the atmosphere since, what, the 50s. And our ice cores go back, I think our oldest one's going back almost two million years now. They're drilling bigger and longer ones all the time. But ice cores go back, and that's pretty great in a long time, but that's still not very long. Um, if you want to look, understand how the Earth has behaved a long time ago, understand why there used to be alligators on the poles, or understand hmm. what the environment was like when the dinosaurs were there, chemistry is the, is the fundamental way to do that. And so understanding, right, there's these little small changes in the chemical structure of an organism shell that can tell us actually a huge amount about the climate and the carbon cycle mm -hmm. and that's like one of the cool things that that we love to do is take these things it's like we have this fossil record or we have this rock record and say what did climate look like over time the chemistry of those materials is what's going to give us that information yeah mm -hmm. uh, so back to minerals i mean ge geochemistry just plays a huge role in our understanding of processes that produce minerals and the and you know there's Obviously, economic importance uh, for concentrations of minerals, whether that's whether that's low temp environment or or high temp environment or weathering or some combination of, of things. But uh, you know, understanding the geochemistry that gets at concentration of minerals is just super important uh, mm -hmm. um, in geology in general. Yeah, I mean, moose, understanding where these fluids move and how they make things form. I mean, that's. Right, I mean, if someone's trying to understand why a copper deposit is somewhere, that's, I mean, that copper ions have moved around <laughs> and then all, you know, precipitated out in one particular spot. So I have three examples here of mineralization or, you know, geochemical significance of, of minerals. And this may or may not fit here, but we can, we can go through them just briefly. So the, the chemical weathering of feldspar to clays Mm -hmm. That's a big one, right? That's a common, broad, broad process, right? Yeah, I mean, so, right? You say in in the beginning there was a big mountain range, right? Or <laughs> not the beginning, <laughs> but like if you think about <laughs> geologic time, you have a giant mountain range filled with, say, granite. Well, granite has a whole bunch of feldspar Feld in it. Yep. Somehow we've got to get that mountain into a nice, beautiful soil that we can then grow <laughs> our crops on, right? And that process of weathering, taking this sort of feldspar mineral that's in our granites, taking that and breaking it down and moving some ions around, precipitating things out, that's a process that gets us into the clays, that gets us into sort of that sort of part of the, like, of, of our environment. Yeah. Um, well said. That it's and then um, before we we were prepping for this, we Doug brought up dolomite, and um, dolomite just being a very interesting mineral, yeah, and uh, sort of challenging in a way to to understand. But do dolomite is a, a calcium magnesium carbonate mineral, um, and dolostone is the sedimentary rock that contains a lot of dolomite. Is that mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, what what do we want to say about about dolomite? It's, I mean, so this is like a big time in Dolomite world. So you guys are <laughs> yeah, hearing I mean, it. If you're not like, like reading <laughs> the scientific <laughs> literature, like this is like the big moment. <laughs> and so just to sort of, we have this thing in your science, it's called the Dolomite problem. We've called it this for a long time because Dolomite's this really cool and really pervasive um, mineral that ha that's this calcium-magnesium sort of 50-50 blend, and we see it everywhere. It's the Dolomite mountains of, of northern Italy. Italy it's yeah. Dolomite's everywhere, and we don't really know how it forms. And until about a week ago, mm -hmm. there was a really um, hugely That's influential crazy. paper that just came out. Breaking news on the Big Blue Rock Pod. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a really big deal. I mean, so there's a bunch of researchers from University of Michigan and from Korea, and what they figured out is that to get this mineral, you have to change the, the environment. So you have to be in a place that gets sort of salty and then not salty, back and forth and back and forth, over and over and over. And so that's really cool, and it's really neat to understand how the mineral forms. What we can tell about this, if you want to think about the environment, is that if you see these big dolomite deposits, that tells us what environment you are in. It's not just a rock on the side of the road. This rock used to be an ancient estuary where like the water was salty and then not salty, and salty and not salty. Or someplace has been really affected by sea level change, or a place that's had big evaporation cycles mm -hmm. happening. And so, right, this dolomite problem, you might think, oh, like, 
well, great, it's a rock on the side of the road, but it tells us so much. And now we understand when we see these big deposits of dolomite, it had to be in this particular sort of environment to form that. Mm -hmm. And again, which is really neat is that most of our dolomite we have on on our planet is actually really old. And there's a little bit forming now, but not very much. And so when, we're, when we wanna like, we think of geoscience as like, we're like earth historians in a way of like understanding what the ancient earth looked like. And now we have an indication that, hey, you know, billion years ago, the earth had these incredible areas of big either salt flats or tidal zones or estuaries, and they had to be very pervasive to have this much rock forming. So it's this new clue we've sort of learned about the Earth. Is most of the old dolomite, so it's old, it, I, I think, what is it, 100 million years is the yeah, age I've seen, old, older than yeah. <laughs> um, We just, I mean, the biggest contrast is that there's very, very little modern dolomite formation now. And yeah. so we always get really intrigued. I mean, we're curious people. When you have a process that happened a lot in the past and doesn't happen now, yeah, like, I mean, present what's is going the on? Key to the past, and then, yeah. right, and we there's don't just have like not the a lot of it there. So the, the dolomite formations I'm aware of in Kentucky are the Oregon dolomite and the Laurel dolomite. And the Boyle. Brassfield. Oh, okay. Boyle and Brassfield are dolomites too. Yeah, but at least part of. Okay. Part of those. And they're they're super interesting formations. Mm -hmm. um, uh, interbedded amongst. Yeah, like some, the Brassfields are not very. Thick. Yeah, they're not they're not very yeah. thick, um, but very physically different. They're re they're resistant. They're mm -hmm. resistant rocks. Um, the Laurel dolomites outcrops in Bardstown. I've been there a bunch of times. Because it's got amazing trilobite, whole trilobite fossils you oh can wow. oh, yeah. get amazing. out of there. Um, but that again, that points to, you know, th th these rocks are interpreted to be tidal flat, yeah, tidal I flat I environments. Yeah, and I think now we can. That helps reinforce that a lot more. Four hundred million year oldish. And dol really dolomites. tidal flat. Really, like must have been like wet, dry, freshwater, yeah. salt water. But the so the dolomite formation's not happening, you know, after the limestone's been buried and there's some replacement or something that like happens that. too that yeah <laughs> that can definitely happen too yeah and so uh, what we know sort of using this information is that that totally happens and it can happen really slowly over time but more likely there's been different fluids flowing okay. through there over time yeah so again like okay that's great but that tells us something too maybe that tells us that the overlying rock had changes in precipitation over time mm. maybe that tells us that the structure changed over time where you had different flow paths i think we don't we don't know i mean but there's we're trying to always learn about what the what the world looks like and how it got to be and what kind of environment had to be to form these things and this is just one new clue sort of on that journey. I just think yeah. it's a, a great example of answering a question and then opening up a whole Yeah, thing yeah. It's <laughs> like, there's plenty of work for you to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, Get yeah. into dolomites, people. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the takeaways from some of the articles that were published, not the actual scientific publication, but then some of the news releases afterwards was that has implications for um, creating like cleaner lab-grown crystals as mm -hmm. well and so like there's an applied aspect to it too that is applied outside of just dolomite crystallization but just mineral crystallization mm -hmm. in general and so uh, that was another big sort of takeaway that they were talking about from from this right what we've yeah. learned from yeah. the dolomite problem um, yeah it's, it's a great example of like yeah I mean as scientists at the university sometimes we go we do these really narrow things but like we try to keep in mind that these have really broad applications mm -hmm. we're not just sitting here like <laughs> all I want to do is talk about dolomite all day long I mean, maybe I could but like it's really really fun to think about how this fits into everything that we do and mm -hmm. it and it does right it fits into forming right maybe they can build better better microchips I don't mm -hmm. know right there's mm -hmm. more silicon based yeah. but like mm -hmm. understanding exactly. that mineralogy oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. right or anything right understanding why the cliffs of Kentucky look the way they do or why different layers um, the flow goes through there or why there's a cape here and there's not another one right. here so these are re these all apply to real questions that we care right. about D I mean dolomites host natural resources I mean they ho host elements oh, yeah. that that are necessary mm -hmm. lead uh, uh, zinc you know some sulfides hydrocarbons mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. definitely so. mm -hmm. They matter. <laughs> you matter, Dolomite. Yeah. <laughs> um, so th the, the third example I had written down is, this may not be really that interesting, but it's chert. 
I think Chert's cool. And Chert, uh, <laughs> what do you like about Chert? Everybody asks well, about it's Chert. Pretty. So. It's pretty. It's <laughs> pretty, right? And, but I, I guess I'm, you know, looking at this through a Kentucky geology lens. But why do we have these thin layers of Chert in between these thick marine carbonates? Mm -hmm. uh, chert is a microcrystalline quartz. Mm -hmm. It's a se sedimentary rock. So uh, I, I've always thought or heard maybe this, you know, the, the source of the silica in a marine environment was a bit of a mystery or maybe it's not a mystery. But I think uh, it depends. And so yeah. we know that there are siliceous or silica bearing organisms like a diatom is one of them. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. I always think about chemistry as a great mass balance, right? Because we're not creating new elements, not in the chemistry that I do. And so where did it come from, right? That's kind of your question. It's like, if you have something, like, well, it had to come from somewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know each particular layer in Kentucky, but the idea is that, like, if you have these silica layers, you probably have some fluid moving, moving that material into that spot and getting it stuck, and then it all builds upon each other. And so maybe that tells us that somewhere nearby was an environment that was really, ha that diatoms, diatoms were super happy, mm -hmm. right? Um, that there was a, something about that time period or that environment was, was really conducive for that sort of marine silicate to form. And then it, then it dissolved away, right, for, for reasons of water chemistry, which is another cool question, um, and then reprecipitated it down. Mm -hmm. The thing, I mean, we try to think about these big mass balance questions of like, well, if we have this here, it had to come from somewhere, where, where is that? And it usually gives us another clue into what the ancient environments were like. Um, so let's uh, wade a little bit more into inorganic water chemistry. And some, some of this we've already, we've already touched on, so we can just briefly here kind of, kind of tee this up to, to ultimately get at some water quality stuff. Uh, so we've talked about water and chemical weathering and water just being this engine that does a lot. Uh, precipitation dissolves gases in the atmosphere, like you mentioned, it's like sort of naturally acidic. Uh, th th then there's you know, stuff that happens with minerals on the surface. Water turns to a leachate that can go underground or remain on the surface and do things. So you have these weathering products um, that uh, can be classified depending on the type of environment there is. So oxidates, carbonates, and so on. Is mm -hmm. that is that kind of a right way to think about uh, yeah. water chemistry yeah. and water weathering? I like your idea of water being the sort of like driver making everything mm -hmm. happen. That's a great way to think about it. Um, so then, does that does that kind of set up um, how you think about water quality? And so, because compositions of things are changing, composition of water is changing, mm -hmm. um, and getting at how you how you understand water quality in rivers or springs or wells or whatever it is and, and how important that is? Yeah, I mean, so think about, I mean, thinking about the geochemistry and the water processes, think about when you different types of drinking water you've had, right? And so some people have really hard water and some people have not hard water, right? And so I grew up in Wisconsin and I got my water from Lake Michigan, which is like great water, right? <laughs> but it's coming from a big lake that has, you know, not as many minerals in it. When I've had water from, say, Lake Superior, which is all in this big granite, it's very, very clean water, has a very different taste. Now compare that to if you have groundwater in Kentucky, right? You've all, we've all had that hard water feel, that hard water caking on all that limestone, accum that lime accumulation, mm -hmm. that's just rock formation mm -hmm. on those things, right? All those different, that's a great example of sort of how the water chemistry is reacting to the environment it's in, right? So if you're getting your water from, you know, a limestone area, you're going to have a lot of different minerals in there. And so I use an example to just sort of illustrate how important the geology is for our water quality and what the water is doing as it interacts with things. So when you hear places that have hard water versus soft water, that's that's all based on bedrock geology? It's based on, yeah, what, what rocks it's going yeah. through. And mm -hmm. so, right, I mean, groundwater, or if you have water from a well, that's almost always going to be a lot harder water than if you have water coming from a surface reservoir mm -hmm. because it's had more time, like, right, think about what groundwater is. It's water sitting in between little bits of grain. Of course it's interacting, like, a ton <laughs> with the rocks around it, picking up all those minerals as it goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is this gets at. I mean, you talked about the importance of applying applying this, and that's what we like to do as geologists: is not just focus on the tiny little 
little research topic of the day, but uh, applying these big ideas. And so this gets at environmental applications, yeah. contamination transport, stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, I was giving the example thinking about your water hardness of the water and like how many minerals it's picking up. But what if those things that it's picking up aren't things we like, right? What if it's picking up, it's running through some sort of rock that has heavy metals in it, right? Well, that's the same process, but it's getting that sort of contamination into our water as well. So imagine water going through, you know, going through a coal seam is going to pick up a lot of the things that are in that coal seam versus water running through a carbonate, right, versus water running through some of the phosphate-rich rocks we have around here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's clear ties between the rocks and the water and what, where we're getting that from. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so y- this may be a little, little weedsy, too, but, but you know, uh, I wanted to talk about geochemical environments and, and sort of related to environmental applications, contamination, talk about solute transport. So in the notes I had got jotted here, there's several things that influence transport. Um, pH, redox zones, sorption reactions. Are, are these things that influence mobility of compounds and water in? Oh. Okay. Yeah, so let's just define a few okay. of those things yeah. first, right? So what is pH, right? pH is, I mean, what it is to me is how, how acidic the water is. And it, for, you know, th- you're thinking about it, the pH of things are going to vary, right? You've had the experience of, of having, drinking some orange juice, right? And feeling that sort of tingle on your tongue. Well, like that's part of the acidity in that, right? Or, right, we use different soaps for cleaning because of its, you know, more basic structure on there. And so different, different fluids are going to have a different pH and it's going to react differently. Right. If I dump my Diet Coke on a rock, <laughs> it's going to react differently than if I dump water on it. Mm-hmm. And so that part of it is, is really important for understanding what kind of reactions you can have. And so water pH changes all over the place. So the ocean's pH is about 8, right? It's a little more basic. It's got all these different material salts in there. And all the organisms are like, that's our pH, right? So when we talk about ocean acidification, say, all we're talking about is make, making that a little bit more acidic, not even getting it to neutral at 7, but just a little more. Mm. But we've all, everything's adapted to work in that sort of environment. Mm. So pH is really important, I mean, both in sort of surface water Kentucky environments, because we're used to a certain pH, um, both in ocean environments, and then there's actually a lot of variability in there from an ocean at, say, a pH of 8 to rainwater at a pH of a little over 5 to sort of neutral water, which is at about 7. Um, mm. So within that range, like, different, a lot of different things can happen. And so coupling that, a lot of times when we think about in geochemistry, we couple the pH, or how much acidity there is, with this concept of redox. And redox is a, a re- uh, oxidation reduction reaction is where that word comes from. Oh, yeah. What that means is how much oxygen there is, <laughs> right? And so you think about you know, looking at a waterfall and that water's churning all over, lots of oxygen in that water, fish are super happy to be, sl- to be hanging out in there. Compare that to, say, a pond that's been sitting there for a long time with, like, no water going, no movement in there. Um, Your fish, if it's, like, super been sitting there for a long time, fish are less happy. The reason they're less happy is there's less oxygen in there. And so understanding how much oxygen is in the water has a big implication for the wildlife and for the geochemical reactions. And putting those two pieces together is a really great way to both understand the water quality and understand what sort of chemical reactions we can have happening in there. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other uh, other factors that influence movement of compounds or like the breakup of ions in, in soil or air or, or water? I mean, um, is it just pH and, and redox? I mean, and those are the big ones, but yeah. lots of other, like what is actually I in your system? I think of temperature. Oh yeah, temperature. Yeah, temperature's a great indicator, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Think about it, if, you, if things are hot, things are moving, right? Like, you think about, like, you're moving on a dance floor and everybody's getting hot and you're doing a lot of motion versus if you're sitting in one spot, mm-hmm. you're cooled down, you're doing a lot less, right? Molecules, like, I mean, they're not really mm-hmm. having dance parties, but it's kind <laughs> of the same idea that, like, they're interacting with each other more if they're moving around a lot more. And so mm-hmm. higher temperatures mean all those little ions and all those little guys can, like, interact with each other a lot more and have much more reaction. Right, you can break down things a lot more at a higher temperature than you can. 
A yeah. good way to think about it is trying to dissolve dissolve sugar, right? If you want to mm-hmm. make a sugar solution, you heat it up, right? And that's going to that's gonna change just the, the capacity of that water to hold that sugar. If you're making mm-hmm. a syrup, you got to heat it up. If you just dump it into cold water, all the sugar just sort of hangs <laughs> out yeah. at the bottom. Yeah, before we also uh, jumped on the mics here, we, we talked about specific issues in Kentucky um, that are, you know, certainly uh, geochemical geochemically related. Um, one, one that came up is acid mine drainage. What, what's acid mine drainage? Yeah, so this is a great segue from our discussion mm-hmm. on pH and redox okay. chemistry. So that's a great yes. thing to go for. Yeah. <laughs> Good, job, Good job, Matt. Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, so guys. This is a chemistry lesson for you. <laughs> yeah, so if you've ever like driven out in the eastern part of the state or any of the sort of cold fields part, like every once in a while you're going to come across a stream that's kind of orange, right? And you look at that and you think, I don't want to drink that. <laughs> that doesn't seem... Something, something, something's different there, right? And if you look in that water and look at it, you don't actually see any fish living in there, and you probably might not even see any plants happening in there either. And so that's an indication of, of sort of a bunch of different things happening. That orange color is probably coming from the iron, but it's some, that is a result usually of acid mine drainage. So what do we mean by that? Acid mine drainage, acid, you've got water coming off that's, got a, that's really acidic, so it's a low pH, um, and then there's a mine involved somewhere usually, and then drainage is the water moving. The, mm-hmm. Is the acid a result of the chemical breakdown of pyrite and sulfides? That and is co- right, and yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's, 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 an uneg- it's an unintended consequence, mm-hmm. right, is that mm-hmm. we have this pyrite. Pyrite is fool's gold. You've all seen it, right? And there's a lot of pyrite in coals, just naturally occurring that way. And so that pyrite's fine and happy when it's just like hanging out in that coal, but once it sees oxygen and once it sees water, mm-hmm. it likes to dissolve away. Right? That's just part of its cap- part okay. of its characteristics. And mm-hmm. so, wet and wa- warm and exposed to oxygen, pyrite dissolves and it forms a bunch of iron and it forms a bunch of sulfur compounds. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that is that iron's not great in the water. The fish don't like that. We don't like that. And that sulfur changes itself into sulfuric acid. Sulfuric acid sounds as yucky as it is, right? It's not great. It's going to change the pH of the whole system. Mm -hmm. So because we've got, you know, old mining shafts through much of our state, that's a great, that you can just imagine the water flushing on through Mm. there, the air is coming on through there, and that's creating that process. And so, I mean, we have old mines everywhere, and anywhere we have old mines, unless, like, a lot of work's been done to remediate it, we have this problem of acid mine drainage, and it's pervasive through a lot of our state and a part of a lot of the, a lot of Appalachia as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you you can get the the orangey water discharge from natural coal seams, but mm-hmm. it, it's, it's just the the mines the kind volume, of I guess. the volume the that, yeah. make that it might worse. maximize. Yeah, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. right. Tailing piles can mm-hmm. do that too. Oh, right. Any time you have just a pile of a pile of pyrite, which is pyrite in coal naturally, yeah. um, this is a process that's going to happen. Yeah. So what are the things that are done to mitigate acid mine drainage? Yeah, is it, so is it, it adding a, a base to it? Or yeah, I mean, essentially know? that's it, right? So you've, yeah. got, you've got this water that's come through the pyrite, and you're going to form it. In the f- you can hit it a few ways. You can do it in the first place of, you know, if, you, if it takes water and oxygen to make this process start, if you can deny that water or oxygen, you're good to go. So what we'll do is if you have, say, a tailings pile, you can seal it off, right? Cover mm-hmm. it up with some material that keeps mm-hmm. the water from getting in, cover it up so the oxygen doesn't get in. You're good. You're, you're actually done a really good job of sort of containing that problem. Bigger issue is that if you have a mine shaft, really hard to like contain that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so then once the water's out, then you've got to deal with it then. And so one of the best ways to do it is to change the pH. And so what you'll see um, in part of our state and across Appalachia is you'll see places where it's a big issue and you'll actually see limestone or that like limestone material, lime, just being added to the water. And when you add the lime to the water, you change the pH of the water. And what happens is that you precipitate out then all of those iron compounds and the sulfur compounds um, as well and change the whole oh, pH of the okay. system. And so, like, I mean, we used to do a class field trip where you could go see the water, the pH of it is 2, nothing is living, it's mm-hmm. gross. You see the spot where they've been adding a bunch of lime to it, and then you go down a mile down the river, and it's full of fish and lovely oh. and wonderful. Wow, nice. The problem wow. is, is that that costs money, mm, that requires sure, yeah. maintenance, and 
solving each and every old mine shaft is a really challenging thing to do. Yeah, and that's a lot yeah. of miles of waterways. Yeah, yeah. creeks yeah. and streams. Yeah. And there's no end, right? Like it's indefinite until as long as it's exposed, it's a problem so that you're continuing to have to treat. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a I mean, if you guys want a job doing geochemistry, <laughs> it's not going away. <laughs> right. And we come up with new ways yeah. to contain it. Um, mm-hmm. We like we'll change the bacterial populations to change the reactions. Mm-hmm. But in in the end, this concept of oxygen and acidity drives all of that chemistry. Hmm. Uh, another another specific. Well, I don't know if this is specific Kentucky, but another issue we, we t- discussed is eutrophication. Mm-hmm. What is that? So the idea of eutrophication is that um, you guys have all been and you've seen when you have you have a farm field and you put a bunch of like fertilizer and nutrients on it. Well, that fertilizer makes the plants grow really well. Does all that fertilizer stay on the plants? No, right? And we do a lot of work here at UK to try to figure out how to keep it keep it under control. But inevitably, a bunch of it goes and washes off and washes into the river. Well, if the plants on your, if your corn plants like that nutrients and they grow better with it, so do the algae. And so when the algae see all of those extra nutrients you just added to the water, they are super excited and happy, but we don't actually want them there. And so you guys have heard of probably um, some of the algal blooms we've had on the Ohio River and other plates places in the state. When that happens, you get these incredible blooms of, of algae happening, and a few different things can happen. One is some of those algae are extra toxic, and they give off sort of toxins and they make the water undrinkable. That's a problem if we're getting our water for our whole municipality from that area. Other thing they can do is they can go back to this sort of redox oxygen issue. It suck all comes out down the oxygen? Suck up the oxygen, right? All those, mm. all those algae are like, hey, give me all of that mm-hmm. oxygen. But not even that. It's like then they all die. Mm-hmm. And as they decay, all their decaying bodies chew oh. up all the oxygen oh, in the wow. process. Yeah. So this is a problem <laughs> everywhere, right? Um, across all of I mean, all of the world, we see these problems of when you have nutrient pollution in the waters, we see this sort of downstream effect of this chewing up all the oxygen or making the water toxic as we go. Mm-hmm. So we keep working on it and trying to, trying to solve it. And you might be like, oh, how does that a, a geochemical problem? But you know, earth science and geoscience is, is holistic, right? We started yeah. off talking about six or seven spheres, right? Understanding these water chemistry problems and how they're reacting with the environment and what those reactions are, that's, still, that's definitely an environmental earth science problem that oh, we yeah. work on. I feel like we've uh, offered a lot of job opportunities for people on this podcast. <laughs> 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 so there's lots of work to be it's done. It's a very <laughs> relevant field. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andrea, you've been super generous with your time. <clears throat> We're nearing an hour here. Um, I, thought, I thought we could end with uh, just a, a few projects you're working on. What's, yeah. what's piquing your interest right now? Um, yeah, what, have that's great. It. So yeah, so I'm, I'm an isotope geochemist, so that's my tool set is, right? It's like you go down your little niche and I look at like isotopes of things, which is just saying, you know, differences in like slight differences in the mass of the composition of elements. Why that is so cool is a trace, you can use as a tracer for pretty much any natural process. And so some of the things that we're doing right now is sort of segueing from this nutrient pollution issue is I, I'm really intrigued by this and like understanding how say nitrates move through the system. And so we have the nitrates coming from the fertilizer, like I said, but there's also nitrates coming from other places. And so, so, so sorry, a nitrate is the geochemical tracer. Well, and so nitrate is the is what you is what you're putting on for your fertilizer. Yeah. So, um, I want to understand where it goes and where it comes from. And so, a lot of nitrates are added to your fertilizer to help your plants, and that's a main spot. But there's another place for that where they're coming from the atmosphere as well. So your automobile is, you know pumping out a bunch of, of, of nitrogen compounds that in the end, through that whole sphere, make its way back down and get rain back down. And I'm really curious to understand how much of the pollution, this nitrate extra nutrient pollution we see, is coming, say, from the farm fields, probably most of it, but not all of it. Some of it might be coming from raining down from air pollution as well. And mm. so my tools can sort of try to pull those things out. And where I want to go with that is that, right, in our state we have, we've had some really big floods and these really big events where you have potentially a lot of rain coming down um, and a lot of surface movement. And so figuring out how those different pollutants are coming from different spots, that's sort of the tools that I'm really interested in understanding. The more we can understand it, the better. And the instruments in your lab 
help do that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, all these different things of these little <laughs> cool signatures that we okay. can track. Yeah. And so ones coming from the atmosphere look different than ones coming from, say, manure versus ones coming from um, industrially made fertilizers. So that's a big sort of environmental and very Kentucky real project that I do. Um, I've had fun projects looking at why there's methane in people's groundwater in eastern Kentucky, mm. right? Mm. And so that's a geochemistry problem is what is happening down in the ground to make that happen. And so we've been looking at how these sort of sites where there's high methane, what is, how does that relate to uh, mining in the area or oil and gas exploration in the area or the local geology of the area to better understand why that's happening, can we prevent it, and we, can we predict where else that would be? Right. So those are good Kentucky projects. I mean, the third thing I do, which I don't want to go into too much, is I, I, I love ancient climate and understanding how climate has oh, changed yeah. over time yeah. and, like, how have oceans moved and changed and um, over these sort of long time spans because the ocean is actually, in the end, what controls global climate in so many ways. And so if we can understand how ancient oceans behaved and moved and circulated, um, that'll give us a clue to understand how climate has changed in the past, and we use this past knowledge to understand what could be happening in the future. So again, you go down this little niche, and I'll be looking at maybe a dolomite <laughs> in a rock core yes. in the bottom of off in New dolomite. Zealand. But like yes. in the end, where that fits into is understanding how the Earth responds to climate, and then hopefully, when we sort of compare the evidence of what we see nowadays, how that's going to be impacting in the future. Andrea, thank you so much for being a guest on the Big great. Blue Rock Pod. Yeah, great, that was it, great. Yeah. Whirlwind, fun, yeah. awesome yeah. conversation. Yeah, I yeah. feel like and. Um, do you want to re-examine your opener? Yeah. Is it French? <laughs> definitely <laughs> not French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely it's not, just not, not French. It's everything you do. <laughs> and what we eat like a hundred jobs we that live. we talked about. Yeah. Totally fine. <laughs> Re-record. <now. laughs> uh, Andrea, thank you. Great talking to you. All right. Thank you all. Yeah. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Bye. Yep. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Rebecca Frazier for technical support. If you have ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>